Chapter Thirteen, Parts Three and Four of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter Thirteen, The Revival of Athens and Her Second League, Part Three the second athenian league and the theban reforms the raid of sphodrius was the direct occasion of the second athenian confederacy for many years back ever since the battle of snitus athens had been gradually forming bonds of alliance with various states in thrace the aegean and the coast of asia minor the breach with sparta induced her now to gather together these separate connections into a common league with the express object of protecting the independence of the Greek states against the oppressions of Sparta. When men thought of the old confederacy of Delos, they might fear that a second Athenian league would be soon converted into a second Athenian empire. But Athens anticipated such alarms, by establishing the confederacy on a different system, which provided safeguards against the dangers of Athenian preponderance and Athenian encroachment. In the archonship of Nasinicus, Aristoteles of the Deme of Marathon proposed in the assembly a decree which embodied the principles of the League. The sway of Persia over the Greeks of Athens was explicitly recognized, so that the field of operations was to be European Greece and the islands. The League, which was purely defensive, was constituted in two parts, Athens on one side, her allies on the other. The allies had their own synodrian or congress which met in Athens, but in which Athens had no part. Both the synodrian of the confederates and the Athenian assembly had the right of initiating measures, but no measure passed by either body was valid until it had been approved by the other body also. While this system gave Athens a weight and dignity equal to that of all her allies together, it secured for the allies an independence which they had not possessed under the old league and they had the right of absolute veto on any Athenian proposal which they disliked. It was necessary for the members of the League to form a federal fund. Their payments were called syntaxis, contributions, and the word foros, tribute, which had odious memories connected with the confederacy of Delos, was avoided. It was especially enacted that the practice of Athenian outsettling in the lands of the Allies, which had formerly helped and supported the Athenian Empire, was not to be permitted. No Athenian was to acquire home or farm, by purchase or mortgage, or any other means whatever, in the territory of the Confederates. But the administration of the Federal Fund and the leadership of the Federal Army were in the hands of Athens. Good fortune has preserved to us the original stone, shattered in about twenty pieces, with the decree which founded the Confederacy, and we find the purpose of the League definitely declared— to force the Lacedaemonians to allow the Greeks to enjoy peace in freedom and independence with their lands unviolated. It was no doubt Callistratus, the ablest statesman and orator of the day, who did most to make the new scheme a success. But though he may be called the Aristides of the Second Confederacy, Callistratus certainly did not mean the combination against Sparta as seriously as Aristides meant the combination against Persia. The policy which Callistratus generally pursued was based on harmony with Sparta and antagonism to Thebes. It is sometimes said that at this period there were two parties contending for the guidance of the foreign policy of Athens, one friendly and the other obstinately hostile to Boeotia. 
But, though Thebes had some friends at Athens, we have no good grounds for speaking of a Theban or Boeotian party. It might be truer to say that there was an anti-Spartan faction, which might often seek a Theban alliance as a means to an end. At this juncture, Callistratus was astute enough to see not only that it would be useless to oppose the feeling against Sparta, but also that an opportunity which might never recur was offered for increasing the power of Athens. He therefore abandoned for the time his permanent policy, and threw himself heartily into a scheme of which the most remarkable feature was union with Thebes. The chief cities which first joined the new league were Chios, Byzantium, Mytilene, Methymna, and Rhodes. Then most of the towns of Euboea joined, and, what was most important and wonderful, Thebes enrolled her name in the list of the Confederates. The Thracian cities, and several other states, including Corsera, Jason the despot of Phere in Thessaly, and Alcetus, a prince of Epirus, presently brought up the whole tale of members to about seventy. But though the League, drawn on such liberal lines, evoked some enthusiasm at first, and the adhesion of Thebes gave its inauguration a certain éclat, it had no vital elements of growth or permanence, and never attained high political importance. The fact is, that the true interest of Athens, as Callistratus knew, was peace with Sparta, and was consequently repugnant to the avowed object of the Confederacy. Hence the Confederacy was doomed either to fall asunder, or to become the tool of other designs of Athens, as soon as Sparta had been taught a lesson, and the more abiding interest of Athens could safely assert itself again over the temporary expedient of an unnatural alliance with Thebes. It was a moment at which the chief Greek states were setting their houses in order. Thebes was making herself ready for a new career, Sparta was remodeling her league, and Athens her finances. A property tax, such as had been introduced in the third year of the Peloponnesian War, was revived, and a new assessment of property was made. One-fifth of the actual capital of each citizen was inscribed in the register, and the tax, probably about one per cent, was imposed on this fraction, not on the whole capital. The revenue from this impost seems to have amounted annually to about sixty talents. For the purposes of levying the tax, the whole body of burghers was divided into twenty simmeries, and the richest citizens in each simmery were responsible to the treasury for the total sum due on the properties of all the citizens who belonged to it. By this means the state relieved itself from the friction which is generally caused by the collection of direct imposts, and the revenue accruing from the tax was realized more promptly and easily than if the government had to deal immediately with the individual burghers. Thus Athens tried the novel experiment of a system of joint responsibility, such as in later days was to be introduced and established in an empire, of which Athens was only an insignificant town. At Thebes the attention of the government was chiefly bestowed on military affairs. A ditch was dug and a rampart raised round part of the Theban territory, as a defense against the inevitable Lacedaemonian invasions but this precaution was of small moment in comparison with the creation of a new troop of three hundred hoplites, all chosen young men of the noblest families, who had proved their eminent strength and endurance in a long training in the wrestling school. Each man had his best friend beside him, so that the sacred band, as it was called, consisted of one hundred and fifty pairs of comrades, prepared to fight and fall together. In battle it was to stand in front of the other hoplites. At the same time, we may be sure, much was done to improve the army in other points. Opportunely for Thebes there had arisen, to guide her to success when her chance came, a man of rare ability, 
in whom nature seemed to have united the best features of Greek character, and discarded the defects. This was Epaminondas, the friend of Pelopetus. He was a modest, unambitious man, who in other circumstances would probably have remained in obscurity, unobtrusively fulfilling the duties of a citizen and soldier. But the revolution stimulated his patriotism, and lured him into the field of public affairs, where his eminent capacity, gradually revealing itself, made him, before eight years had passed, the most influential man in his city. He had devoted as much time to music as to gymnastic training. Unlike most of his countrymen, he could play the lyre as well as the Theban flute, and he had a genuine interest in philosophical speculation. A Tarentine friend, who had been much in his company, assevered that he had never met a man who knew more and talked less than Epaminondas. But the Theban statesman could speak when he chose, or when the need demanded, and his eloquence was extremely impressive. Exceptional in his indifference to the prizes of ambition, he was also less exceptional in his indifference to money, and he died poor. Not less remarkable was his lack of that party spirit which led to so many crimes and revenge, and we have already seen that his repugnance to domestic bloodshed kept him from taking a part in the fortunate conspiracy of Pilopetus. Section 4 the Battle of Naxos and the Peace of Callias. The following eight years are marked by a successful defensive war of Thebes against Spartan invasions, by a decrease of Spartan prestige, by the extension of the Theban supremacy over the rest of Boeotia. At the same time, Athens prosecutes a naval war against the Lacedaemonian Confederacy, and gains considerable successes, but the strain on her resources which this war entails, and a growing jealousy of Thebes, combined to induce her to come to terms with Sparta. Two invasions of Boeotia, conducted by Agesilaus himself, in successive summers, achieved nothing, and the Thebans had the satisfaction of slaying Phobetus, who had won his fame by the capture of their Acropolis. The other king, Cleombrotus, did even less than Agesilaus, for he found the passes of Catheron held by the foes, and could not enter Boeotia. After this, the Thebans had time to attack the Boeotian cities, and drive out the Spartan garrisons, so that by the end of four years the Boeotian confederacy once more extended over all Boeotia, the local governments being overthrown and the foreign harmosts expelled. Only in the extreme west, in Orchomenus and Charonia, were the Lacedaemonians able to hold their ground. In the course of this resuscitation of the Boeotian League, one notable exploit was wrought by Philopetus and the Sacred Band. At Tegira, on the road from Orchomenus to Locris, in a narrow pass, the Thebans routed twice as many Lacedaemonian troops, and slew both the Spartan generals. As in the case of all Spartan defeats, the moral effect was of far greater import than the actual loss in the field. Perhaps it was about this time that Athens won back Oropus, which had been lost to her in the year of the four hundred. In the meantime there had been war too on the seas. When the invasions of Boeotia fell out so badly, Sparta had bethought herself of equipping a naval armament to cut off the corn-ships, which bore grain to Attica from the Euxene. The ships reached Gerestus, the south point of Euboea, but a fleet of sixty galleys under the Spartan Polis hindered them from rounding the Cape of Sinium, and Athens was menaced with famine. Eighty triremes were speedily fitted out and sent forth from the Piraeus, under the command of Chabrias, to recover the mastery of the sea. Chabrias sailed to Naxos, which had seized this moment to desert the Athenian confederacy, and beleaguered the city. 
Polis hurried to the rescue, and a battle was fought in the sound between Peros and Naxos. The Athenians gained a complete victory, and only eleven of the Lacedaemonian vessels escaped. Even these would have been disabled, had not Chabrias desisted from the action, for the purpose of saving some of his own men who were overboard or in disabled ships. The lesson which the Athenian people taught its generals after the battle of Argosine had not been forgotten. Though the battle of Naxos had not the important consequence of the battle of Sinidus, it was more gratifying to Athens. The Sinidian victory had been won indeed under the command of an Athenian, but by Persian men and ships. The victory gained by Chabrias was entirely Athenian. It led immediately to an enlargement of the Confederacy. The triumphant fleet sailed round the Aegean, enrolled seventeen new cities, and collected a large sum of money. Athens had also to reassert her authority at Delos. For the inhabitants of the island, who chafed at the administration of their temple by the Athenian amphictions, as the sacred overseers were entitled, had attempted, doubtless, with Lacedaemonian help, to recover the control of the sanctuary. An interesting entry in the Delian accounts of these years, preserved on a stone, tells how seven ringleaders of the movement were punished by fines and perpetual banishment, for having led the amphictions forth from the temple and beaten them. Next year the fleet was sent to sail round the Peloponnesus under the command of Timotheus, son of Conan. This circumnavigation of the Peloponnesus was an assertion by Athens that her naval power was once more dominant. It was intended to frighten Sparta, to extend Athenian influence in western Greece, and to act in the Corinthian Gulf, in case the Spartans tried to throw an army into Boeotia by the port of Croesus. The islands of Corsera and Cephalenia, the king of the Molossi, some of the Archanaeans, were won over to the Athenian alliance by the discreet policy of Timotheus, who also gained a trifling victory over some hostile ships. But there was a darker side to this triumphant expedition. The cost of the war was proving to be greater than Athens could well bear, and Timotheus failed to obtain from home the money requisite to pay his seamen. In this strait he was obliged to ask each trirarch to advance seven minae for the payment of his crew, and Athens herself sent a request to Thebes for some contribution towards the expense of the naval operations, on the ground that the enterprise of Timotheus had been undertaken partly at Theban instigation. The refusal of this demand, along with the growing jealousy of Theban success, and the somewhat grave financial difficulties of the moment, combined to dispose Athens towards peace with Sparta, and this was in fact her wisest policy. Negotiations were opened and carried to a successful issue, but the peace was no sooner made than it was broken. For Timotheus, who was ordered to return home from Corsera and reluctantly obeyed, halted at Zacynthus on his way, landed some Zacynthian exiles who were with him, and fortified a post for them on the island. The Zacynthians straightway complained to Sparta. Sparta demanded satisfaction from Athens, and when this was refused, the incident was treated as a breach of contract, and the war was resumed. The first object of Sparta was to regain her power in the west, and undo the work of Timotheus. The best of the winnings of that general had been Corsera, and Corsera once more became the scene of a Peloponnesian war. With the help of their confederates, including Corinth, the Lacedaemonians launched an armament of sixty ships, conveying fifteen hundred mercenary hoplites, to gain possession of the island, and at the same time a message was dispatched to Dionysius of Syracuse, requesting his aid, on the ground that Sicily had her interests in Corsarian politics. The armament was commanded by the Spartan 
Manassippus. He drove the Corsarian fleet into the harbour, which he blocked with his own ships, and he invested the city by land, so that the supplies of the inhabitants were cut off. The island was a rich prize for the soldiers to whose depredations it was now given over. The tillage was goodly, the crofts and farmhouses exceedingly fair, and so plentiful was the wine that the troopers would drink none that was not of the finest sort. Urgent messages were sent to Athens by the Corsirians, who soon began to feel the pinch of famine. So great was the misery that slaves were cast out of the gates. Even some citizens deserted, but were whipped back to the walls by the Lacedaemonian commander. But he, deeming that he had the city in his hands, grew careless in his confidence, and from the watch-towers on their walls the besieged could observe that the watch was sometimes relaxed. An opportune moment was seized for a sally, which resulted in a completer success than they looked for. The professional soldiers, who had not been paid and detested their general, showed no zeal in withstanding the hot onslaught of the desperate men who poured forth from the gates. Manassippus was slain, and the besiegers fell back to their camp. The beleaguerment was thus broken up, and the Corsareans were safe until the coming of the expected help from Athens. But they were delivered from all constraint even before that tardy help came, for the Lacedaemonians evacuated the island almost immediately after the defeat. Then at last the Athenian fleet sailed into the roads of Corsera. It was from no want of goodwill on the part of the Athenian people that help had not come in time to save Corsera much of the misery which she had suffered. A tale hangs by the delay of the fleet. On the first appeal it was resolved to send sixty ships at once, and six hundred peltast were sent in advance and successfully introduced into the city. It was befitting that Timotheus should return to the scene of his former achievements, and the command of the fleet was entrusted to him. He found himself in an awkward position, owing to one of the gravest defects in the machinery of Athenian administration. The people had voted a certain measure, appointing him to carry it out, but had omitted to vote or consider the necessary ways and means. It consequently devolved on Timotheus to find the men and the money. For this purpose he cruised with some of his ships in the North Aegean, visiting Thessaly, Macedonia, and Thrace, while the main part of the fleet awaited his return at the island of Caluria. But meanwhile the need of Corsera was sore, and more pressing messengers were arriving in Athens. The long tarrying of the general excited public indignation. His appointment was annulled, and Iphicrates, in conjunction with Chabrias and Callistratus, was charged to sail at once to Corsera. Callistratus was the most eloquent orator of the day. Chabrias, a tried soldier who had served under Cypriot and Egyptian kings, we have already met as the victor of Naxos. Iphicrates, who had come to the front by his boldness and success in the Corinthian War, had for the last fifteen years served as a captain of Peltas under the princes of Thrace, and had married a daughter of King Cotis. A comic poet gives a picturesque description of his barbaric wedding. In the market-place a plentiful feast is set out for a throng of wild-haired Thracians. There are immense brazen cauldrons of broth, and the king, girding himself up, serves it with his own hands in a golden basin. Then the wine and water are tempered in the mixing-bowls, and the king goes round tasting each bowl, until he is the first drunk. But an adventurous life among the butter-eating barbarians does not seem to have wholly satisfied Iphicrates. He served the king of Persia in Egypt, and then returned to Athens, and this expedition to Corsera seems to have been his first service after his return. It was well and capably performed. The people, in their excitement, gave him a freer hand than they had given to Timotheus. He was able to put hard pressure on the trirarchs. 
he was allowed to impress seamen and to make use of the galleys which guarded the Attic coast, and even the two sacred vessels, the Salaminia and Perellus. By these unusual efforts a fleet of seventy triremes was put together, but before it was quite ready to sail, Timotheus returned. His crews had been successful in raising money and men, and adding new members to the Confederacy, but it was thought that neither necessity nor success could excuse the singular inopportuneness of the delay. Ill luck seemed to wait upon Timotheus. The funds which he brought back proved insufficient to meet the obligations which they ought to have defrayed, and a fraud was suspected. Iphicrates and Callistratus, his political rivals, lodged an indictment against him, but as they had to sail immediately to the west, the trial was postponed till the autumn. On his way out, Iphicrates learned the news of the deliverance of Corsera, so that he was able to send back those ships whose true duty was the defense of Attica. But there was still work to be done. The appeal which the Lacedaemonians sent to the tyrant Dionysius had not been in vain, and ten Syracusan triremes were even then approaching Corsera. They stopped at a point in the north of the island, that the crews might rest after the long voyage, and there Iphicrates, whose scouts had watched for their approach, captured them, all but one vessel. This prize raised the welcome sum of sixty talents, but it was not long before Iphicrates, even as Timotheus, found himself embarrassed for want of money. Callistratus went back to Athens, promising to persuade the people either to keep the fleet regularly paid or to make peace. Meanwhile, the crews of Iphicrates obtained subsistence by labor on the Corsarian farms. If Corsera had fallen, there can be little question that Timotheus would have been sacrificed to the displeasure of the Athenian people. But the good tidings from the west restored the public good humor, and this was fortunate for the discredited general. His trial came in towards the end of the year. His military treasurer was tried at the same time, found guilty of malaversion, and condemned to death. But Timotheus himself was acquitted. He had indeed unusually powerful support. Two foreign monarchs had condescended to come to Athens to bear testimony in his favor, the Epiriot king Alcetus and Jason the despot of Thessalonian Phyre. It was through Timotheus that these potentates had joined the Athenian League, and it was through them that he had been able to transport across Thessaly and Epirus the six hundred peltasts who had been sent in advance to Corsera. The interest of Jason, of whom more will have to be said presently, was particularly effective. Timotheus entertained these distinguished guests in his house in Piraeus, but he was obliged to borrow bedding, two silver bowls, and other things from his rich neighbor, the banker Passion, in order to lodge them suitably. Though acquitted, Timotheus was discredited in public opinion, and he soon left Athens to take service in Egypt under the great king. Sparta had lost heart at the decisive check which she had received in Corsera, and the discouragement was increased by a series of terrible earthquakes, in which Poseidon seemed to declare his wrath. She was therefore disposed to peace, and she thought to bring peace about, as before, through the meditation of Persia. Antalcides was once more sent up to the Persian court. But this intervention from without was not really needed. Athens, uneasy under the burdens of the war, and feeling rather jealousy of Thebes than bitterness against Sparta, was also well inclined to peace, and the influential orator Callistratus made it the object of his policy. The recent aggression of Thebes against the Phocians, who were old allies of Athens, tended to estrange the two cities, and to this was added the treatment of that unfortunate little mountain burg, Plataea, by her Theban enemies. 
Restored Plataea had perforce been enrolled in the Boeotian Confederacy, but she was secretly scheming for annexation to Attica. Suspecting these plots, Thebes determined to forestall them, and a small Theban force, surprising the town one day when the men were in the fields, took possession of it, and drove all the Plataeans forth from the Plataean soil. Many of the people, thus bereft of land and city, found a refuge at Athens, where the publicist Isocrates took up their cause, and wrote his Plataic Discourse, a denunciation of Thebes. This incident, definitely, though not formally, loosened the bonds between the two northern powers. The overtures came from Athens and her confederacy. When the Lacedaemonian allies met at Sparta in spring, three Athenian envoys appeared at the Congress. One of these, the chief spokesman, was Callistratus, and one of his associates was Callius, torch-bearer of the Eleusinian mysteries, who had also worked to bring about the abortive peace three years before. Thebes likewise sent ambassadors, one of whom was Epaminondas, the basis of the peace which was now concluded was the principle which had been affirmed by the king's peace, the principle of the autonomy of every Hellenic city. The Athenian and Lacedaemonian confederacies were thus both rendered invalid. No compulsion could be exercised on any city to fulfill engagements as member of a league. Cities might cooperate with each other freely so far as they chose, but no obligation could be contracted or enforced. Yet while Athens and Sparta resigned empire, they mutually agreed to recognize each other's predominance, that of Athens by sea, that of Sparta on land, a predominance which must never be asserted by aggression, and must always be consistent with the universal autonomy. The question immediately arose whether the Boeotian League was condemned by this doctrine of universal autonomy. Sparta and Athens, of course, intended to condemn it but it might be pleaded that the confederacy of Boeotian cities, under the presidency of Thebes, was not on the same footing as the confederacies which had been formed, for temporary political purposes, without any historical or geographical basis of union, under the presidencies of Athens and Sparta. It might be contended that Boeotia was a geographical unity, like Attica and Laconia, and had a title to political unity, too, especially as the League was an ancient institution." The question came to the issue when it was the turn of Thebes to take the oath. Her representative, Epaminondas, claimed to take it on behalf of the Boeotian cities, and Thebes, represented by him, was not so easily cowed as when she made the same claim at the conclusion of the king's peace. He seems to have developed the view that Boeotia was to be compared to Laconia, not to the Lacedaemonian confederacy, and when Agassilus asked him, curtly and angrily, "'Will you leave each of the Boeotian towns independent?' he retorted, Will you leave each of the Laconian towns independent? The name of Thebes was thereupon struck out of the treaty. There was an argument as well as a sting in this retort of Epaminondas. The argument was, Sparta has no more right to interfere in the internal affairs of Boeotia than we have to interfere in the domestic administration of Laconia. Laconia, Boeotia, Attica, each represents a distinct kind of constitution, and each constitution is justified, the union of Boeotia in a federation is as natural as the union of Attica in a single city, as legitimate as the union of Laconia in its subjection to the Spartan oligarchy. The union of Boeotia, like the union of Laconia, could not have been realized and could not be maintained without the perpetuation of outrages upon the free will of some communities. Yet it is hardly legitimate for one state to say to another, We have committed certain acts of violence, but you must not interfere." for at a remote period of history, which none of us remember, your ancestors used even more high-handed methods for similar purposes, 
and now you maintain what they established. But the tyrannical method by which Laconia was governed was certainly a weak point in the Spartan armor, and the reply of Epaminondas may well have set Greece thinking over a question of political science. Setting aside the arguments of diplomacy, the point of the situation was this. Thebes could never become a strong power, the rival of Sparta or Athens, except at the head of a united Boeotia, and it was the interest of Athens and Sparta to hinder her from becoming such a power. So far as the two chief contracting parties were concerned, this bargain, which is often called the Peace of Callias, put an end to a war which was contrary to the best interests of both. They were both partly to blame, but Sparta was far more to blame than her old rival. Her witless policy in overlooking the raid of Sphodrius had caused the war, for it left Athens no alternative but hostility. At the end of four years they seemed to have come to their senses. They made peace, but they were still stupid enough to allow the incident of Zacynthus to annul the bargain. Three more years of fighting were required to restore their wits. But although Athens was financially exhausted by her military efforts, the war brought its compensations to her. The victory of Naxos, the circumnavigation of the Peloponnesus, and revival of her influence in western Greece, were achievements which indisputably proved that Athens was once more a first-rate Hellenic power, the peer of Sparta, and this fact was fully acknowledged in the Peace of Callias. But the true policy of Athens, from which the raid of Sphodrius had forced her, was that of a watchful spectator, and this policy she now resumes, though only for a brief space, leaving Sparta and Thebes in the arena. As for Sparta, she had lost as much as Athens had gained. The defeat of Naxos, the defeat of Tegira, the failure at Corsera, had dimmed her prestige. After the king's peace, she had begun her second attempt to dominate Greece. Her failure is confessed by the peace of Callias. If a third attempt was to be successful, it was obvious that it must begin by the subjugation of Thebes. End of chapter 13, parts 3 and 4